God says that his justice, which is, which is his very nature, demands that he punish every single sin without exception. It's coming. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Does the Bible teach that God is a God of justice? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue in Tom's series titled God's Sermon on His Name. Our world and culture have flawed views of justice, especially as it relates to God. We as Christians must be careful not to allow these distorted views to be applied to the God of the Bible. God's self-revelation in Exodus 34 destroys all inadequate, idolatrous views of God, especially those that promote wrong views of His justice. The truth is, God is holy, great, and good, but He is also just and the very foundation of his throne is justice, according to the scripture. Let's join Tom for more on The Word Unleashed. Exodus chapter 34. There is something, I think, in every human heart that longs to see justice done. It's part of the residual image of God. We know that God is a God of justice and We therefore long for justice to be accomplished. But in our world, we all understand that justice is often perverted. In the justice system, those with money, power, or influence certainly try to subvert justice. And sadly, injustice happens as a daily occurrence around us in the normal venues of life, in government, in schools, in workplaces, and even in families. If you doubt that, just ask yourself this question, how many times in your life have you either heard or said, it's just not fair? It's just not fair. Injustice is part of living in a fallen world. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that God at times is willing to compromise His justice for us. Some, unfortunately, even begin to think of God as an indulgent grandfather who's out of touch, unaware, and from whom they can easily hide their sin. God's self-revelation here in Exodus 34 destroys all of our inadequate, idolatrous views of God and replaces those things with a glimpse of His holiness, His greatness, His goodness. And as we will see today, His justice, the justice of the true and living God. This remarkable self-revelation comes in the aftermath of the golden calf incident. That is the ominous backdrop as we've seen. It was the sin of God's people in Exodus 32 and up through chapter 33, verse 11. As Moses then seeks the forgiveness of God for his people… He makes three audacious requests. We looked at the end of chapter 33 at the prayer of the mediator, the one God had appointed to to intercede on behalf of the people. Those requests, three of them, first of all, for the promise of God's presence, go with us. 
Secondly, for the knowledge of God's character, let me know your ways. And finally, for a display of God's glory, show me your glory. Those are audacious requests. So on what grounds can God grant those? On what basis can Moses ask? And the answer is the only grounds on which this can happen is the sovereign grace of God. That's why in Exodus 33 verse 19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And God determines that He will, in fact, be gracious to Moses. He will answer these requests. And that brings us to chapter 34, the first seven verses, which are God's gracious revelation, God's own explanation of His name. This self-revelation demonstrates how God responds to His people when they sin against Him, when they break the promises they've made to Him. So this passage could not be more appropriate than it is for any of us. Now here in Exodus 34, verses 1 to 7, God teaches us several essential verities or truths about Himself. Let me just remind you of the ones we've seen so far. First of all, God is holy. The first four verses tell us that when we sin, God doesn't bend His law. He doesn't compromise His moral stands. In fact, He tells Moses, in response to the people's sin, they had shattered God's law. Moses shattered the the tablets sort of as a symbol of that, and God says to Moses, if I'm going to restore my people to myself, I need to write out my law again, cut out two two tablets and bring them to me, and I will write on them again. It shows the holiness of God. Secondly, we discovered that God is great. We saw it in His condescending to be with Moses. We saw it in His names that we examined together. Thirdly, we discovered last week that God is good. He is good in His attributes. That is, He is good in who He is. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and truth or faithfulness. And then we finished last time by looking at the fact that God is good in His actions, that is, in what He does. Now, I noted for you that in verse 7, there are two distinct groups. There are, first of all, the thousands to whom God shows steadfast love and forgives their sin, and then there are the guilty whom He will not leave unpunished but visits their iniquity on the third and fourth generation. Who are these groups? Well, we looked last time at two parallel passages that sort of give us insight into who these groups are. We looked at Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, and Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And when you look at those passages, you discover that the, the two groups here in Exodus 34, 7 can be defined, first of all, as those who love me. That's how they're identified in those other passages, those who love me. Who are those who love him? Well, again, when you reconstruct what is said in these three passages together, you can define it this way. They are the guilty who believe in Yahweh as their God, trust solely in His grace, repent of their sins, seek His forgiveness, 
And having found that forgiveness through His grace, they then love God and show their repentance and love by obedience to His Word. The second group is those who hate me. Those who hate me. These are the guilty as well, but these are the guilty who remain unrepentant and demonstrate their hatred for God by continual disobedience and a refusal to turn from their sins and to plead for His grace and forgiveness. Now, God acts very differently toward these two groups. And by the way, as we noted last time, these are the only two groups. You are in one of these two groups. The question for you is, which one? To those who love Him, God's actions are completely goodness. We saw that verse 7 says, to them He keeps steadfast love, and He does so for thousands. Thousands obviously means many, but when you compare it with the other text we looked at, it also means to the thousandth generation. Now, that's not a promise that God is going to show His steadfast love by saving every descendant to the thousandth generation. That's not true in Scripture. You see that with Abraham. Not every descendant of Abraham was a true believer. Not every descendant of Isaac. Not every descendant of Jacob. Not every descendant of David. So it's not saying every single person in every single generation, but rather God will show His steadfast love on the godly person's line to the thousandth generation. You and I still benefit from the promises made to Abraham. Secondly, God's actions are good in that He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. When those who truly know God through the grace of God repent of their sins, God forgives. If on the other hand, those who know God through His grace refuse to repent, they get in a pattern of sin and and get locked in that sin and refuse to turn, God will discipline them or chasten them as His children. In fact, notice the next line in verse 7, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We're going to see that that applies primarily to those who hate Him, but it is used on a couple of occasions in the Old Testament to refer to those who love Him. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, God expresses this to Israel. He says, I am with you to save you, for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. Listen to this. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. See how he connects this expression with his chastening or discipline of his own children, those who love him. And of course, the same point is made in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 and following, God says, if you're my son or my daughter, I'm going to discipline you like any good father would. So, for us who know God through Jesus Christ, when there's repentance, there is forgiveness. And if we refuse to repent for a time, then God will bring discipline and chastening into our lives. But today, I want us to move on to this next expression here in verse 7 and consider how God responds to those who hate Him. 
And we discover in this a fourth essential verity about God. Not only is God holy, great, and good, God is also just. He is just. Look at verse 7. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Those in the first group get undeserved grace. Those in the second group, those who hate him, get the justice they deserve. Now, God explains that his justice has two expressions here. Notice, first of all, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God will justly and certainly punish those who do not love him for their sin. We saw this, remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to how verse 10 puts it. God repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Jeremiah uses this expression to describe those who are stubbornly unrepentant. Now, God's statement here in verse 7 about himself means that he always is and he always acts in perfect, unwavering justice. This is the testimony of Scripture. If you go back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, you remember what Abraham said to God? He said, God, far be it from you that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly, that is, deal in justice. Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses in his great song says this of God, his work is perfect for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. In Job 34, verse 12, surely the Almighty will not pervert justice. Psalm 89, 14, justice, O God, is the foundation of your throne. In other words, justice is the, is the base on which God's rule is built. Now, when the Bible says God is just, it means two things. First of all, it means that as the perfect lawgiver, He has given us His law. And secondly, it means that as the perfect judge, He measures us, each one of us, against that law and gives us what we deserve. He is just. Now, there's a massive problem with the justice of God. We, we want God in one sense to be just, just not just with us. Because God is just, understand this, not one sin escapes God's notice. Have you ever thought about this? Let this drill into your soul because this is the testimony of Scripture. Not a single sin committed on this planet escapes the notice of God. God knows every sinful act, even the one we do our best to hide. Psalm 90, verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the blazing light of your presence. Nothing, nothing 
is hidden to God. God knows every sinful habit. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. The Hebrew word for paths is a reference to a person's lifestyle, to their patterns of behavior, to their habits. God knows every sinful word. Matthew 12, verse 36, every careless word, singular, that people speak, Jesus says, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment, for every single careless or sinful word. But most unsettling of all, I think, is that God knows our every thought and motive. See, we can look pretty good to everybody else. Other people may look at us and think of us a way that's totally different than the way God knows us. But here's the troubling reality. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 says, "...the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart." How can it do that? "...there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open." and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Think about this with me for a moment. From the day you were born, God has witnessed every single time you have sinned. He has heard every sinful or careless word that has ever left your mouth. He fully knows every sinful thought, such as lust or anger or bitterness or jealousy that you have ever entertained. And in the mind of God, in the perfect, omniscient mind of God, there is a perfect record of every single sin every single sinner has ever committed. In fact, in Revelation 20, it's described as the books in heaven being open. That is the divine record of the deeds of men and women. If you've not repented and believed in Christ, that same passage, Revelation 20, says that you will stand before what John the Apostle calls the great white throne of judgment. And in that judgment, the books will be opened. That is figurative of the divine omniscience, the all-knowing mind of God that has captured every single sinful thought and word and action. And... God will use that complete record to judge you when you stand before Him. Not one single sin will go unpunished. God will punish every single violation of His righteous law. That's what it means when it says, yet He will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 23.7 says, I will not acquit the guilty Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Jeremiah 32, 19, the Lord's eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. And it's it's expressed here in verse 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God says that his justice, which is which is his very nature, demands that he punish every single sin without exception. It's coming. There was a famous Southern Baptist 
evangelist who preached a message, a famous message with the title, Payday Someday. Payday Someday. Now, what I've said so far might lead some people, maybe even you, to think, wow, that really sounds unloving. How could a loving God respond to sin and sinners like that? You don't really believe that God is unloving to be just. And let me, let me explain why you don't really believe that. What if I told you that down in at Tarrant County, down at the courthouse in Tarrant County, there was a human judge who had a reputation for being so loving that every criminal who appeared in his court, he forgave them and dismissed their case and let them go. Every murderer, every rapist, every child abuser, every person who committed a horrible act of crime, that judge, because he was so loving, just forgave them and let them go. What would you say? Now, be honest with yourself. You would not say, oh, that's so wonderful, that judge is just so loving. No, there is within you the residual image of God which says, that's not loving, that's a perversion of justice. How much more, God says, would that be true if I did the same thing? You see, if God isn't just, then He's not God. Justice is the foundation of His throne. That means somebody's going to pay for every sin you have ever committed, every single one of them. It will either be you for eternity, or it'll be Jesus Christ, the one whom God has appointed to be able to stand in your place. But somebody is going to pay for every single sin ever committed on this planet. The justice of God demands it. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There's a second expression of God's justice in verse 7 there in Exodus 34. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, this passage is often grossly misunderstood. First of all, let's look at the word visiting. The Hebrew word means to carefully investigate and respond based on what you find. That's what it means to visit. Sometimes it's positive. God God visits His people and finds them in desperate physical condition, and He does them good. He he gives them food. For example, Ruth chapter 1 talks about that. God visited His people and gave them food. But most of the time, it's used in this sort of context. God carefully investigates and responds based on what He finds. So don't misunderstand. Listen carefully. God never punishes children for the sins of their fathers. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 7 of his series titled God's Sermon on His Name. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? And Tom, does God's justice demand that every sin be punished? Or might he somehow let some sins slide? You know, Bill, what Scripture clearly teaches is that from the day we were born, God has witnessed every single one of our sins. He's heard every sinful or careless word. 
He knows every sinful thought that we've ever entertained. In the perfect, omniscient mind of our God, there is a perfect record of every sin that everyone has ever committed. And God's justice demands that those sins be punished. His character will not allow anything else. Our only hope is in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. He dies on the cross to deal with sin for those who repent and believe in him. And the way he does so is by satisfying God's justice, by receiving the punishment that we deserved in our place so that God could extend forgiveness to us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 